Thank you. I did a Google search this week asking, um, what's the Sunday after Easter called? Does that have a special name? What's the Sunday after Easter? And what I found is the Sunday after Easter is called Empty Pew Sunday. <laughs> Empty Pew Sunday. All came to church on Good Friday, came to church Easter Sunday, come back at Christmas. Uh, good on you for filling your pew today. Good on you for, for joining in online today because I think that today I'm going to share the best news you've ever heard. You might remember that uh, back before Easter we had spent a couple of weeks exploring our focus first, that verse in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 22 and then at Easter we had turned our attention to Jesus' death and to his resurrection and now today we're kicking off this brand new series. But this new series doesn't leave Easter behind. It doesn't leave our focus first behind. Rather, what Christ achieved at Easter and the commission given to us in this focus first to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some, these things form a really good foundation for this new series called Being the Church. And to explore this idea, this idea of what it means to be the church, uh, we are going to take a long and deep dive into the letter to the Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Like his other letters, um, Paul opens up by, by helping this uh, fledgling Ephesian church to make sense of what Christ has done, what Easter was all about. And so that from that place, he might start to get really practical as to what life in the body ought to look like, what it means to actually participate in the mission of God. And so today we're going to crack this open and we are just going to look at the first 14 verses in Ephesians 1 where Paul lays out something of a foundation for this whole letter. Um, we are going to do some heavy lifting this morning. We're going to do some work. If you've brought your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to be, to be following along. We'll look at a few different versions, and that's okay. I think the more we, we soak in this, the better. So I encourage you to follow along. Uh, in terms of just a little bit of background, uh, the book of Ephesians is a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Ephesus. Now, apart from Christ himself... Probably nobody has had greater influence on, on the Christian faith than, than the Apostle Paul. Anything that, that we might claim to know or to understand about, about what it means to follow Jesus has the fingerprints of Paul all over it. This letter was probably written while Paul was in prison in Rome around about AD 60, about the same time as he wrote the letter to the Colossians. Uh, Ephesus was one of, if not the largest, most important trade city in ancient Greece, in modern-day Turkey. It was the, the centre for goddess worship, the, the worship of the Roman goddess Diana, the Greek goddess Artemis, and it was famous for this, this amazing temple to the goddess Artemis. 
You might also remember that it was the church in Ephesus uh, that was referred to as the lukewarm church in Revelation 2. It was the church that had lost its first love. So we're going to start by getting uh, just familiar with this passage and going to open it up in the ASV. Um, It's a difficult translation. Translators seem to have had difficulty with with this passage all along the way and you're going to see why. It opens up like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God to the saints that are at Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so far so, so good. This letter is a cyclical letter, which means that it's not addressed to any individual. It's not addressed to any particular gathering. Rather, it's the whole church, the whole body in Ephesus. And so this letter would have done the rounds of all of the house church gathering, gatherings in Ephesus. The letter is to the saints. It's to the faithful in Christ. And what Paul is about to do in this opening stanza is to remind the believers in Ephesus of just how massive the scope of their salvation is. The extravagant goodness of God, the, just the magnitude of Christ's work and even what glory awaits those who are in Christ. Are you ready? I need to take a breath. Seriously, I tried to read all of this yesterday and nearly passed out. You're going to see why. Blessed be God the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love having foreordained us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved in whom we have our redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence making known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him unto a dispensation of the fullness of the times to sum up all things in Christ, the things in the heavens and the things upon the earth. Still going. In him, I say, in whom also we were made a heritage, having been foreordained, according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that that we should be unto the praise of his glory, we who had before hoped in Christ, in whom ye also, having heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having also believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is an earnest unto our inheritance, unto the redemption of God's own possession, unto the praise of his glory. Right, you got that? 
This is a tough translation, but it's a faithful one, and I don't know if you picked it up. In those 12 verses, there's only one full stop, and it's that one there. It is one sentence. It's just like one big, beautiful, complex stream of consciousness. Paul is just going for it here. Can't help himself but to expound the the enormity of what God has done through Christ. He pegs out for the Ephesian believers the length and the breadth of the hope that they have in Christ because of the goodness of God. I want to, to, want to look at this again now in a translation by, by theologian Karl Barth that he had prepared for a sermon and then we're going to, to do some work in the NIV. But take a look at this translation picking up in verse 3. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing of the heavenly world, world in Christ. Thank you, Carl, for that full stop. In him, he chose us before the foundations of the world were laid that we might be holy and blameless in him. In love, he chose us so that we might be his children through Jesus Christ according to his good pleasure, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he lavished upon us in his beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the abundance of his grace, which is amply given to us as complete wisdom and insight. He has let us know the mystery of his will to carry out according to his good pleasure the reuniting of all things in Christ in the fullness of time as he planned things heavenly and things earthly in him. In him we have become heirs and were chosen for this according to the pleasure of the one who accomplishes everything according to the attention of his will so that we might be the first to hope in Christ to the praise of his glory. In him you also heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation and were sealed with the spirit of promise through faith in him who is the pledge of our inheritance until at last it becomes our possession to the praise of his glory. What, what Bart has done here, and he's done a beautiful job of it, is to highlight something of an underlying structure of this whole stanza, as well as to call out the, the crux of Paul's theology. Now, you might remember earlier this year, we spent some time looking in Romans 8 and recognising that, that according to Paul, that, that every blessing, that every promise of the Christian life is in Christ. En Christo. En Christo is perhaps the primary interpretive key, the main hermeneutic that gives us access to unlocking Paul's Theology in him, in Christ. It's echoed throughout all of Paul's letters, 216 times, in fact. And it does not mean in honour of Jesus. It does not just mean some mental belief in Jesus as some separate, external, other entity. Paul's principle of en Christo is my life hidden in his that I have died 
and that Christ is my life. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Paul's principle of en Christo is the good news. And it's not the good news that we can receive Jesus. It is the good news that Christ has already received us. Jesus himself says in John 14, 20, he says, On that day you will realise that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. To be in Christ is to come to grips with the revelation because that's what I believe it is, the revelation that right now, by his spirit, that we occupy the same cosmic geography as Christ. The ultimate existential reality is that my beingness, that your beingness has become eternally fused together with Christ by his spirit. And according to Paul, that is salvation. That is righteousness. That is everlasting life. This union with Christ is what Jesus called abiding. It's what he, what he called remaining in me. Remain in me as I remain in you. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And what Paul does here in this long worship sentence is to effectively recast everything that we think we know about God and, and eternity and hope and to place it all within the anointed one, within the Messiah, within Christ. And so with that key in place, we're now going to have a look in the NIV. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Praise be to the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. We are blessed. This is our starting point. Paul spends the rest of this whole big, long, complex stanza reminding the Ephesians, reminding us that we are blessed, that we are unbelievably blessed. And he starts by telling us that these blessings come directly from the Father. They come directly from heaven. They are spiritual blessings. They are blessings that transcend our earthly experience. They go beyond our mortal limits. He tells us that these blessings were purposed in the heart of God before the beginning, before the creation of the world, right back then. He tells us that the work of redemption, that that the work of forgiveness, that it's done. He says we have redemption right now. And he says that we can look forward, we can look toward our destiny. All things united in Christ in the fullness of time. And that these spiritual blessings, this destiny, Paul reminds us, this redemption, this inheritance, it is rock solid. You're included. You are adopted into eternity as a child of God. That's the good news. That is the gospel of your salvation. And this destiny, Paul assures us, it is guaranteed by the indwelling of the Spirit of God. So God the Father determined this plan from eternity past. Christ the Son secured our forgiveness and our redemption 2,000 years ago. It's done. And the Spirit of this good and this eternal God, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of this promised future. Can you see how Paul is revealing to us the chronology of this blessing and the Trinitarian nature of this blessing, of this promised future? So what is this promised future? We'll get this because this is what Jesus had secured for us last weekend. Right in the middle of this big sentence, almost like a hinge, Paul reveals this cosmic mystery, the eternal will of God. He writes, With all wisdom and understanding, he, the Father, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is God's big idea. This is his big vision. The future toward which all of creation, seen and unseen, is all going in this direction. To sum up all things in Christ, the things in the heavens and the things upon the earth, the reuniting of all things in Christ, things heavenly and things earthly in him. Paul tells us the same same thing in Colossians. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 19, he writes, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
Now, I don't know what picture of Christian destiny you have or what picture you had as a kid or any kind of picture of Christian destiny at all. But if I'm honest, I think that mine, probably up to 15 years ago, was still this idea that I would be whisked away to heaven, which I think was in the sky, as a spirit or something, probably without a body. I bought the idea that this is not my home, that I'm made for heaven and that earth would be done away with. That the whole point of the Christian life was to leave earth and was to get to heaven to go be with God. Or at least to go be with Jesus because I wasn't really sure what God was like. That's not Paul's theology. It's not John's either. Read Revelation 21. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says so much Western Christianity has been concerned about how we humans find our way to be with God, but the Bible is far more concerned with how the creator God intends and promises to come be with us. God's vision is that the separation between heaven and earth, that the chasm between creator and And creation is overcome, reunited, and the movement was all from his side. All things are coming together, made new in Christ. And you and I, we are part of all things. And the cosmic structure of this oneness is relational, it's social, and that social structure is a family and we have been adopted into it. Somewhere too along the line, the church in the West at least bought the idea that salvation, and that's what this vision is, bought the idea that salvation is an individual thing. That it's my decision, that it's my forgiveness, that it's my relationship with God. We've swallowed a half-truth, a hyper-individualistic gospel The good news that Jesus' saving work is for me. And it's true. I know that Jesus loves me. But if my concept of faith and and salvation and forgiveness is limited to me, I have completely and totally missed the point of God's plan. I've misunderstood the all-encompassing purpose of Jesus' birth birth and life and death and resurrection and I've certainly missed all his teaching. The good news is a corporate message. It's family news. It's an us promise. It's a one another destiny. And we have not found our way into this family by accident and certainly not by any good thing or any clever thing that we've done. Look at this. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. Did you get that? Let me make that clearer. He chose us before creation. Before the words, let there be light, were spoken, he chose us. You think about it, that means that the gospel, the good news of what Christ achieved, predates the law. 
We think it's the other way around. We think the law is what God wanted first and we couldn't live up to it and so Jesus had to come and save the day. The gospel of salvation in Christ, the reconciliation of all things in him was always plan A. So if I think that I chose God, then I have way overestimated my part in salvation. He predestined us to adoption to sonship and daughtership through Jesus Christ. He determined before time to gather us into his family. It wasn't a lottery. It wasn't a contest. It wasn't a riddle. It wasn't luck. We were chosen, adopted, fully-fledged sons and daughters of the king with all rights and responsibilities and even the inheritance that comes with it. He chose you and he did this in accordance with his pleasure and will. The father did not need to be convinced to take you in. He certainly did not need to be placated. He did not need to be satisfied with a blood sacrifice to make you acceptable. That is really sketchy theology. Your adoption is an overflow of the riches of his grace. Your adoption is because of love. Only love. God has never imagined a future apart from you. That is what predestination means. It means that we have been redeemed since before we were lost. It means that we were forgiven since before we sinned and certainly before we repented. Somehow we've also been led to believe that this redemption and this forgiveness is achieved when we say some magic prayer, when we invite Jesus into our lives. He did the redeeming. He did the forgiving. He invited us into his life. If I were to ask you, when were you saved? You might say, when I was 16. Or back in 2012. You might say, last weekend. Praise God. The truth is, your salvation was secured 2,000 years ago. That's when you were saved. And the determination in the heart of God to do that saving, that was settled before creation. That's the news. It's just that we're only now waking up to it and believing it and living in the light of it. Paul writes, in him, we, we Jews, so he's talking about him and his mates now, we Jews were also chosen, having been predestined according to the will of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So Paul is talking about the Jews. He's talking about the Israelites, one family tree, remember. And the Jews believed that it was only them who were chosen, that they were the only predestined ones but Paul has come to understand that in the same way that that Adam's fall condemned all of humanity Christ's righteousness has justified all of humanity Jews Gentiles everyone this is why Paul writes writes in Romans 5.18, he says, Just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, so one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. 
And so, you also, you Ephesians, you Gentiles, you Tumbiumbians, you Benzvillians. Sounds worse, doesn't it? Benzvillians. You are included. You are included when you heard the message of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation. You were already included when you heard it. We're just telling you the news. Jesus' righteous act was sufficient to justify and to save all people into everlasting life. And so this vision, this destiny of cosmic unity, this is your destiny too. This is why Paul says, I can't look at anyone the same way anymore. And when you believed this truth, when you ingested it, when you wrapped your life around it, when you wrapped your hope around it, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. When you believe the truth that you're chosen, that you're predestined, that you're adopted, that you are redeemed, that you are forgiven, and that all of this was an act of love, when you believe the news that you're included, that promise is sealed with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, as a guarantee. It is the Spirit that binds us to one another, that binds us to the Father and to the Son. It is by the Spirit that we are in Christ, in family. Paul writes, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. John says a similar thing. Whoever, does not, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It is in him, it is by his Spirit that we have life and it is his life and we have it now. In him, by his spirit, our inheritance is guaranteed. It is sealed, it is stamped, it is, it is approved. The inheritance of sons and daughters of the king. Everything on earth, everything in heaven. Praise God. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory. Do you believe it? Do you believe that the creator God, the loving Lord of heaven and earth, chose us, adopted us as his children, even before the foundations of the earth? Do you believe that this is your story, that this is your destiny, that by his own self-emptying that Jesus bridged the chasm between heaven and earth and he redeemed us. Extravagant love, boundless grace, sufficient to reconcile every atom of creation. And that's his desire, that nothing would be lost. And we are allowed to hope for that too. We are also allowed to choose something different. I don't know if God will have his way in the end, but I do know that you were chosen. I know that I was chosen. I know that we were all chosen. I know that there is an ultimate truth at work here that, that in Christ God is reconciled to us. 
We are redeemed. We are forgiven. It's good news. And we can live now in acceptance of that reality, of that news. We can receive his spirit. We can be marked for all eternity, united in the Son, in the body of Christ. We can live now in ways that are visibly and that are meaningfully shaped by that destiny. Or it seems we can reject that news. We can choose a non-adopted life. Out of relationship with God, destined to who knows what, apart from his presence and apart from his will. We're free to choose that. No doubt. We see it all the time. And of course, there are those around us every day and and across the globe who don't even know yet that there is a destiny to embrace. Who haven't heard the good news that they are chosen, that they are included, that they are redeemed, that they are loved. And do you know what? It is no one else's job to let them know. That's what the church is for. So let me pray. Oh, Father God, I thank you for Paul. It's no wonder he went to jail. Such an outrageous truth. Before creation... Before you spoke it into existence, we were in your heart. You had already chosen your family. Praise God. Praise God that your plan at the fullness of time was to, was to reconcile everything, everything in heaven, everything on earth to you. That Jesus did everything that was necessary to make that happen and has invited us, has called us into the very life of the Son. Praise God. Praise God. We give you all of the glory. We don't hang on to any sense that this is anything of our doing. It's all extravagant, boundless love, better than we can ever imagine. Lord, would you give us the courage by your Spirit to live a life that is worthy of this salvation, of this calling, that we would be living testimonies, living signposts of the good news. Praise you, God, by the power of your spirit in the name of your son. Amen.